Hey everyone, thanks for coming back to Real Leaders. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, and Real Leaders is the podcast that brings you the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders I know. Before we jump into this week's episode, again, I have one more ask. If you like this show, please take a moment and rate this podcast on iTunes. It matters a lot. Go to the podcast app on your phone, search Real Leaders, go to the reviews tab and rate the show. Today, we're joined by Margaret Miner. Margaret is the founder and CEO of Rags Consignment and of 1020, a truly special and innovative nail and waxing salon. Hi, Margaret. Thanks Hi, for joining us. Sue. It's so great to be here. Thanks for thinking of me. Oh, this is awesome. You have one of the best natural entrepreneur stories that I've ever heard, so I just can't wait to share it with the Real Leaders listeners. Fun. So the way we start this podcast, Margaret, is we ask our guests to give us their three-minute life stories. So go. Ready, go. So I was born and raised in Austin, Texas, 21 when I got married. Um, a couple months past getting married, we moved to Boulder, and I have not gone back since. I still have family and roots that run deep in Austin, so I'm there often. When I got to Boulder, one of my first jobs was working front desk at Flatiron Athletic Club, which has some meaning for me now looking back because I met so many people in the Boulder community early on. I sold Discovery toys. I had three children in 87, 89, and 91. I started to think about rags or something that I didn't know was going to be rags in 1993 thinking, why is no one selling things that I want to buy? Why is there no used shop that's selling Banana Republic and Ann Taylor and very wearable, usable women's brands? So none of which I knew because now I know, ooh, I saw a niche and ooh, it was brands and ooh. (laughs) But I had no business background. I'm about 30 hours short of a history degree undergraduate. Never took any business courses, the whole thing. So anyway, I opened the first rags in 1995 and less than a thousand square feet. I had one book on how to start a consignment store. It was the only book that was out there. There was no internet. There was no eBay. There was no Craigslist. Nobody was showing any of us how to do this thing. I didn't have a computer when I first started. Everything was manually written with a pencil on a steno pad. (laughs) Yeah, that was me. (laughs) So, and I had kids running around and just sort of figuring out life about how to do that with children and a business and a husband and a dog and a cat and dinner to get on the table. So, And you opened your first unit in Boulder, Colorado? Yes. Got it's it. It's two doors down from where I am now. Okay. I was looking at other places like on the Pearl Street Mall, which I thought would be hip and happening and the thing to do. As it turns out, life guided me to my strip mall. <laughs> And it could not have worked better. So within about a year and a half, we were growing into the next space that was slightly bigger. And then another year and a half or so, we grew into a bigger space and just kept taking over space. And that's why the strip mall works so well for you is that it gave you the availability of other units? It's partly that. And it's partly that it's easy for people to get in and out of. My customer very much has you know, a a dog on a leash and a baby in a pack and two bags of clothing to bring in. And that never would have worked if she'd had to walk two blocks on Pearl Street to get to us. It just wouldn't have worked. So 
Thankfully, in spite of me, that worked out. There is a lot of perception around consignment. I think that it is sort of inherently a small business. And having spoken to you before, I know that you have grown rags significantly. You just alluded to growing physically from your first space. Give us an update. Here we are now, essentially 20 years later. Well, we're in interesting times, obviously, because so much is selling online. We're not feeling it, but I personally worry about it. Women still need to try it on, I think. They like the gathering of the hunter-gatherer bit. It has changed a lot in that there's so much more of it. I'm really aware of that now. There are so many more bags. There are so many more beautiful coats. There are so many more pairs of jeans to choose from. It's great for us because people change all the time. It's interesting to think about where it might go. At some point, it has to slow down a little bit, I think. I don't know. We'll see what happens. I'm trying to be really aware of the online presence and how we can use that without maybe creating our own because that seems unnecessary at this point. But I want to make sure that we're giving our customers the right message and still offering the service that we've always offered. And I feel like we're way ahead of the game just because people trust us. They're in the habit of coming to us with their stuff. And then maybe they sell it online. I'm not sure. That's a good point. So how many units do you have? How many, how big is Rags right now? The spaces, we have the one in Boulder. Yeah. That's about 6,500 square feet and probably holds on any given day, maybe 8,000 items. Wow. Yeah. And that store, if you walked in one day and then you came back to us four and a half to five weeks later, everything in the store would be different. Wow. It changes over that fast. Two years ago, we opened a store in Cherry Creek, which I had been looking at for several years, just trying to find the right space for all the reasons I was saying. It has to be easy to get in and out. And Cherry Creek, just for those people who don't live in Colorado, is in Denver and very high end. Right. Okay. Which works really well because what we have is a smaller store offering more high end you know, sort of the super brands, as well as J. Crew on the you know lowest end. So, and then we just opened about two weeks ago um, what we're calling the warehouse, whose huh. intention was to be <laughs> just a space to sort things and keep things organized and pull them in and choose maybe to take them to one of the other stores, but. As it turns out, it's a retail space. <laughs> really? Where is this space? It is directly across from Rally Sport on okay, Bluff. Okay, I've heard about and this. And it's a junky little space that we've made beautiful. It's really of fun. It's kind of that industrial thing. And it currently has about 7,000 items. The difference How is, long has it been open? Ooh, two weeks or so. So in two weeks, you've pivoted your perception of what this space was going to be? No, but in the last six months we have. Okay. From taking possession of it to finding out that it was zoned for retail and not warehouse. <laughs> Even though everyone we were dealing with and the business side of it trying to procure the space was saying warehouse, warehouse, warehouse. Oh, hilarious. So, yeah. It's kind of worked out again the way it should, the way we needed for it to. We don't consign there. It's filled with items that I personally have chosen over the last two years that were designated to be donated. But we said we could give these another shot because huh. they're so great. They just missed that one person, that one four-week period. So it's kind of super selected or super curated by me. Wow. <laughs> yes. Which sounds a little crazy at this point in my career, but it's been really fun to just touch on all of it and make a decision about what I think is good enough to try again. So, Margaret, if I wanted to go 
consignment shopping today, would I be better off going to the main store or going to this kind of appealing, this one that's specifically curated by you? There you go. I don't know. You should tell me I should go to both. (laughs) You've considered expanding this brand to other cities, right? Yes. And I still have dreams of going to Austin just because my family's there and there's nothing like it in many cities still. So if you happen to be sitting in Austin right now and listening to this and really into this issue, I can tell you for sure that this 14,000 total square feet that you have in Boulder, plus the other couple thousand you have in Denver are incredibly high performing retail spaces. Uh, even though you might not know it when you walk in, Margaret alluded to the fact that everything's turned over in four weeks. And then she alluded to the fact that things are donated. If you've never consigned, you might not know that that's how the cycle works. People buy stuff. And if not rags, at least donates those things to Goodwill or whatever. You really want these stores in Austin. So Call Margaret. Uh, In the meantime, while you were doing this, you created 1020. Tell us a little bit about that. So 1020 was another of the why aren't they doing what I want them to be doing business? Because I tend to open those. (laughs) Great. And so what is it that you really wanted? Back then, what I was finding is that I could either choose to go to the questionably sanitary little nail spots all over town, all over every town in the United States, or I could go to the high-end shishi be quiet, put on the white robe and drink the lemon water, (laughs) neither of which is me. So I thought, why can't somebody do something in between that's a spa quality service, but has a little bit of a women's den or a women's hangout space that you could bring a group of four or five girlfriends or an entire sorority or a men's book club group or come in with your girlfriend and watch TV. That's very much what we're a part of is women's or girl junk TV is what we call it. Yeah. We watched a lot of Ellen. Yeah, I know. In the first years, we watched a lot of Sex in the City. Right. So I created that. It's all geared toward the television. We, in the beginning especially, it was Diet Coke and M&M's came with every service, which was me saying, if somebody would just turn on Oprah and hand me a Diet Coke, I would be fine with everything else I'm seeing in this not-so-great space. Yeah. So that's what I did. I opened it with a friend of mine who since went off and did her own thing, but it's still here 12 years later. It's a little crazy. How big is that television that you have in that place? I mean, it's like a gigantic sports bar fantasy camp for women, meaning that it is mostly Ellen DeGeneres, which is great for me because I never get to watch Ellen and I'm always in there just completely guffawing. And you get a pedicure at the same time or waxing or a manicure and you get M&Ms and the space is magnificent. It is so beautiful. And it's been in two iterations. I think the first one, how many different colors of pink paint pink. did it have? Like 14 <laughs> shades of pink or something. Pink everywhere. Yeah. So this, this is just an absolutely beautiful space. And it's also huge. I mean, at one time, how many pedicures can you be giving? We can give, I think it's 14. Yeah. Yeah. So and this we is, can give eight manicures at the same time. Not so. small. It has a big yeah. retail area also that's highly curated, presumably in part by Margaret. So it's very special. So these are not small businesses and they're in zones where people think of as small businesses. So what's been your secret of turning things that don't seem to be wildly profitable or wildly large into two extremely successful businesses? I mean, you're very well supporting yourself and a lot of other people in these companies, right? Yes. So what's your secret of that? What comes to me first is to want to say that we're honest. Hmm. And that sounds really broad and sort of a little mushy. 
<laughs> especially with rags when we started, we were just straight up honest. There was no question about if your item sold that we would or would not give you money, which we were hearing around town or huh. something. And then at 1020, it's sort of the same thing. We're promising that we are spa quality, that we're following all the sanitary guidelines and you don't have to worry about that. We're good. And then the rest of it is just being careful about taking care of our customers and standing up to everything, which has been, I mean, it's part of, we've talked about staffing issues. That's sort of my main thing is that it's not that the customer is always right, but that the customer needs to be heard. Right. And women are generally, they're good. I mean, people <laughs> want us to succeed. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. There, there's something wrong if they have an issue with something. We need to hear what that is. So as between these two businesses, which I think it's important, like they were founded without an MBA. They were founded really organically without any, you know, you've learned business as you've gone. Just It's just a great story. You've been way more interested in rags and building rags than you have in 1020. And myself, I actually go to 1020 quite a bit more, although I do enjoy getting what feels like free money when I go to rags. They're just highly particular about what you bring there. So you really have to know the drill. But you haven't been quite as excited about 1020 since we met a few years ago. Why is that? I think it was... A couple reasons. Number one, rags feels like my baby. It feels like my fourth child that for years and years I have to go check on it and change its diapers and <laughs> make sure that it's going along. I also make more money off of rags. So there's that. Yeah. And trying to be careful about that. With 1020, my intention when I opened it was to be the idea person to put together the systems for the business to oversee all the marketing, the things that I like to do, and I think I do well. And then for my partner at the time to take care of day-to-day -day and mm. take care of hiring people, and that quickly went away. It was within a year after opening. So I think I've always carried that a little bit. The uh, This is the ugly stepchild, even though it's not. I mean, listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> I do walk around town and feel like more of a little superstar about 1020. People huh. go, oh, you own 1020? And I'm saying, no, but there's rags too. <laughs> <laughs> this was interesting too, is when I opened 1020, I just assumed everyone knew about rags. We had done some studies too and showed that one in 10 women who live in Boulder County were consigning with us. Huh. But it wasn't an easy connection. It wasn't that everyone who went to 1020 went to RAGS or everyone to, who had gone to RAGS, you know, goes to 1020. So that's been interesting and still is. They're completely different groups of people. So at 1020, when your partner left early on, in the, when, when was that business created? 2004. Great. When your partner left in 2005, have you been successful in finding another person to take on the day-to-day? -day? I have great managers. Yeah. It really just came to that and trusting them to do those jobs. And somewhere along the way, I finally figured out <laughs> that I should split the management job into two. And so we have the one who is the manager of the staff, the service staff, and one who is the manager of the front desk staff. I know that you're selling 1020. Yes. And uh, Selling or closing. 
whichever happens to happen first. Margaret, all these people are listening. <laughs> Would you like to buy we, it? <laughs> yeah. We don't want to talk about the fact that you're potentially closing it because it's such an appealing business. So why are you selling it? The two are so different that it takes completely different energy to run them. Whereas now rags, we sort of have a handle on it. We know how to open them. We work well together. This is, I'm alluding to my second husband that we've been together for five years. And 1020 just still feels like that thing on the side. Okay. We're feeding it. We feed it well. It's very organized. It would be fun to talk about. This has been an interesting process because I love my team so much there. Mm. And I love our clients so much that it feels really personal to think about shutting it down. We'll say more about that. Yeah. Well, one thing we did was I thought I need the freedom to have conversations about who could take over the business. And I needed for my staff to be in on that because mm. they are the value of the business. There is no business without them. And I can't do a pedicure. <laughs> so <laughs> I have heard of a lot of stories where they show up at the door and the door is locked and right. there's a note on the door that says, we are done. Go home. You don't have a job, which I would not do. So a couple months ago, I came up with letting them know what was happening, letting them know what the timeline is, and letting them know that if they stick with us through the end, whatever the end may be, which at most would be through April 30th of next year, that we would compensate them a full month's pay, which would be the average of their last three months of work. And so trying to figure out how to say that to them and then have them in on it and get past the tears, it's worked perfectly. Because mm -hmm. now every little interest I get from someone saying, hey, I'd like to go see it. Do we have to be secretive about this? I can say, no, go talk to Molly. She knows exactly what's going on. She'll show you around. Uh, so, yeah. That's great. Yeah. And everybody signed the piece of paper and said, I'm in. I'm going. Whatever the end may be, we told them we would give them 30 days notice and then a full paycheck. So, Margaret, one of the things about this place, and it's probably true about Rags as well, is that a lot of the staff has been there essentially since the beginning. And some of your staff is professional staff, and some of your staff isn't. It's service-oriented staff. That one of the most challenging aspects of that is turnover. You seem to have figured something out there. And the example you just gave is a great example of that. Like, that's an incredibly respectful way to treat staff. So what are some of the other things that you think you're uniquely good at cultivating that create loyalty among staff? Well, number one is I always say I want them to have a real life. So I don't want to know all about their real lives. I can't deal with all their real lives, but I want them to know that they can have one and that I'm good with that. So they don't have to think about me first. They can wait and think about me third or so. <laughs> I think it's back to being honest too. And, and I care about them. I care about who they are and I care that they are successful with me. It's interesting because the, the different businesses have completely different pools of labor. So at 1020, it feels like it is their career, except for the front desk girls who go to see you and they're getting some degree in something and they'll be off when they're done. But everybody else there, it's their career, and they make serious money. At RAGS, I feel like I'm always saying, I understand that this is your job. It's my career mm. and my manager's career. Huh. So they're going to pass through. 
But to your point, yes, there are two people at 1020 who've been with me since the first couple of months of the business, which is amazing. And then we have several who've been there for four or five years, and then it feels like a really good time. It's a great group. We should also talk about the horrible stories. Yeah, let's <laughs> talk about those. I feel like there's a book in this that's yeah. going to be a kitchen confidential kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> there's the wax room diaries. That's fun. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was one thing early on, too. I said, anyone who's working for me in those wax rooms, you can't come out of the room and tell stories. Huh. Or it will be found out all over town that 1020 is telling our personal stuff. So it's like this little, what we were talking about earlier, the... There's a little therapy that goes on in there. It's very intimate. It's very personal. And they see some stuff. <laughs> yeah. And they hear some stuff. And they hear things about women tend to come in and say, I'm having an affair and my husband doesn't know or my dog is sick or my grandmother's dying or it's crazy. Huh. Yeah. And how does that work for your staff? The people, <clears throat> I know one of your team members right. has been there since the beginning and that's her, I mean complete zone of genius. She's unbelievable at that right. specific thing. <laughs> right. uh, incredible at it. So how does that work for them to be the recipient of all this talk when actually they're there to perform a service? Right. And I've tried to give them words and sort of gestures and saying, "It. I do not expect you to take that on. That's not what you're doing here. It's still hard though. They take it in. It's like it's seeping into her pores as she's in there. So we've had, she's taken some yoga retreats for a week here and there. Wow. <laughs> and has learned to say, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to wax you. You watch TV. Or maybe you need to go talk to someone. One thing that we should bring up, though, is that these 30-something women with three kids and two dogs and a husband and the whole thing will come to me and say, how did you do this? How did you do this with three kids who are... I adore my kids. They turned out, you know, but part of it's, it's not the same world. I wasn't carrying a cell phone. My whole life wasn't coming at me every minute. So I feel like these young women are taking on loads of stuff. They're raising babies. They're expected to be on call for work. They're expected to go for a run, really, in this town. I was going to say a jog, but it's not right, a jog. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you got to show up to your yoga class and your stretch class run. and your run. and It's rough. And then I think they get into that wax room and fall uh, apart because huh. somebody's touching them in a nurturing way and they start crying. So... For, for you men out there, um, if you think bikini waxing is being touched in a nurturing way, I just want to totally correct that misapprehension. Uh, they are really nurturing people. Nothing about that process is nurturing. Maybe that's why the therapy comes up. I don't know. Uh, and that might be TMI. I, I should have just yeah. crossed the line. So, Margaret, there's still something that I think that candor and authenticity with your staff is an enormous way to build loyalty. But... There's something else, like, I don't know, does it feel like a family? Are you able to create that atmosphere? Even just you regarding, like, this is these people's career. I think a lot of people that are in service industries and ownership and management don't even offer the courtesy of seeing it that way. I think that by itself is unique. How do you cultivate a perception that these guys are indeed building careers and how do you make it possible for them to earn serious money when if they went down the street, they probably wouldn't. 
Good question. We do try to help them with the math, by the way, and say, if you're going to go down the street, at least realize that just because they charge $50 more for a pedicure doesn't mean they have people coming in for the pedicure. Uh, (laughs) Right. You need to look at all the numbers that are related to that. I don't know what it is. I feel like maybe to your point, it's a tribe that we're saying you you can come into our tribe and here are the rules and here are the expectations. And if you can step up to that, which we're going to support you in, you can stick around. We've also booted a lot of people out of the tribe through the years. What's the <laughs> so, most common reason you get booted out of the tribe? Um, well, most recently I thought this is sort of perfect and classic because we have had a young woman come apply for the job. She seemed to be great. She was personable. This was at RAGS. This was probably three or four weeks ago. And then suddenly she's saying, I need four days off at Thanksgiving. And the week before that, I'd like to have three days off because my boyfriend and I want to go skiing. And then she made the mistake of calling to say, I feel sick. I'm not going to come in this morning. And oh, by the way, I'm already in Breckenridge. So (laughs) (laughs) we thought you might have been a little smarter about that. But so we see a lot of people just come and go. There's not a work ethic. I did have a dad once years ago come to me and say, I feel like you're running a finishing school. I thought, oh, that was one of the greatest compliments. Obviously, I still remember it. And I, you know, said, in what way? And he said, we send them to you to learn how to interact with people and learn how to have a job and what the expectations are. So, yeah. That's Loved really it. beautiful. That's a really, <laughs> yeah. really nice compliment. And his son, by the way, who was one of the few boys who've ever worked for us, has turned out beautifully. Uh, that's fantastic. <laughs> We live in a relatively small community. I mean, 100,000 people in this town, 250 in the greater metropolitan area. And I do actually think you have a temple of feminine joy. I, by the way, last week I was there and there was a fraternity at 1020 getting pedicures. So it's not exclusively feminine joy, but right. even for those guys, they were probably appreciating the feminine nature of that experience. What have the reactions been to you selling or closing this company? It's been more traumatic than I ever imagined. People have had more big reaction to it than I thought. I thought that people would care, and I thought that people would wonder where they're going to go to get their services, but I didn't realize it would be just last week. We had a woman come in and say, oh, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? How am I going to be? And I thought, oh, I didn't expect that. It's more of a sparkly diamond than I give it credit for. Uh, It is the thing. I'm the popular girl in this town occasionally because of 1020, not rags. I feel like I have hardcore, you know, great customers both places. But there's something shimmery about 1020 that people want to be a part of. So I really want someone to buy it. (laughs) I want it to go on and on. Or I want someone to step up and say... Let's open this everywhere and I'll take care of that. And you, Margaret, can be a part of the story and the guidance and the the branding package I'm really proud of Yeah, and have said I'd be happy to sell that part of it. Right. Because that's 12 years worth of making it look shimmery and shiny and interesting and fun and makes me wonder sort of what is the community's responsibility? I mean, the funny thing about this is, you know, when your favorite coffee shop goes out of business because the landlord changed the rent and people go there and use free Wi-Fi and don't pay for anything. And you can sort of see all the reasons why that happens. And so, you you know, you just think, okay, it's a failing business. I still wonder about the community's responsibility to help it succeed. 
you actually have a phenomenally successful business that you're just not all that interested in anymore. And you have all these customers that many of them actually could buy 1020 because this is not a impoverished community here. How does the community take responsibility for keeping something like 1020 going when the owner doesn't want to do it anymore? Have you ever, have you thought about that at all? And I don't know how to tap into that. I feel like to the other points I've tried to think, how can I do this differently? How can I do the sale or the shutdown or whatever it is differently based on, you know, taking care of my people? But yeah, I, I've spun my brain around trying to think, is there a way to do this that's not so obvious? I don't know what that is. My landlord is fantastic, and we both got a little weepy. <laughs> You're saying, people are going to miss you, and my wife's really going to miss you. And I don't know what that is. And it wouldn't take much. And I know what the list of things are that, you know, it's interesting when you're selling a business and you want to tell people what they could do with it to make money. Right. I'm thinking, well, why didn't I do that? <laughs> but I have a couple of things where I can think if somebody's got the gumption to get in there and do it, it would be a great success. It is a great success. It would be a greater success. Huh. It has these legs that would carry it to great distances, I think. Margaret, my brain is just turning around (laughs) possibilities for me to buy this company. I've thought about it before, actually. It's one of my favorite businesses in the country. Uh, It's extraordinary. So you other people, you you can call me too. We can buy it together. So Margaret, why did you leave college with 30 credits left? It didn't seem important at the time. So my little history of college is that I went to a girls' school in Virginia, Randolph-Macon, women's college, and had a horrible semester. And then I went back home with my tail between my legs. Mm. This is interesting, too. So I get off the plane and get to my new liberal arts college in Virginia and did not know what a liberal arts college was. (laughs) So (laughs) I figured that out. Then I went home, sort of regrouped, went to a community college to get my grades back up, then went to the University of Texas, and then met the man that I would marry. And then we came up here, and I continued at CU with my history degree. And then I think I got pregnant somewhere in there, and it didn't seem important, and I always thought I would get back to it. And now when I think about finishing, which is funny, and I've done that in the last couple of years, said, okay, what what would be the path to that? Now I feel like if I'm going to do that, I want to give somebody else that money that I would spend on myself. It's an expensive proposition to go back to school just to have the piece of paper at this point. So now I feel like if I'm going to spend that money, I'd rather spend it on some sort of... I don't know, helping someone who really needs the college education. It almost feels selfish to you to go back to school? it does. How do you feel about young people? I mean, you interact with college students all the time in these companies, and and you, you have kids. Young people who decide not to finish school. It depends on who they are. The young women who come to me and say, hey, what do you think about this? (laughs) Because otherwise I try not to give my opinion on things like that, not knowing what their parents are telling them. And But if they have crazy gumption and they don't know exactly what direction they want to go, that they should sit back and wait at least until that becomes more obvious. I've seen so many women come to us who have crazy debt and still don't have a degree. And then, you know, my son graduated with a degree from CU and then he went to 
He's a user experience expert in the United States and makes crazy money and lives in LA. (laughs) And then my daughter, who actually you worked with, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. She's in graduate school at Arizona State and she'll be a therapist or something. So they have definitely found their path that direction. Mm -hmm. My youngest couldn't get herself through school. It wasn't interesting to her. And we'll see if that turns around. But that's okay with me because I see that it can work out you just have to work harder so when you hire people if to the extent you hire people that are an age they've already been through school do you have a preference for degrees or are you indifferent i'm indifferent absolutely (laughs) because what i'm asking them to do doesn't require that and it's not about age and it's not about we've talked about this recently millennials i don't think that women of certain ages youth or older are more hardworking or less hardworking or... Yeah, I don't believe I, that. I think that's really a crazy <laughs> fallacy. I don't know where that got started. Yeah. I don't have that experience either. Yeah, well, good. So we're on record. We love millennials. You love I love millennials. I love them. I don't get it. I don't know what everyone's talking about. I think it might... You know, one thing I wonder about is, is it just insecurity? Like there are times... I don't know how to use Photoshop. And so I got this new app. I got Sketch. It's not new. It's a visual application to make visual stuff on a Mac. And there's a part of me that's like, do I really want to admit that I'm still really at the bare bones learning of this application (laughs) that essentially any 11-year-old would be able to use? I just wonder if some of it isn't insecurity. Like technology is moving so quickly and there may be a worry among our generation of being left behind and maybe that creates some animosity around millennials. Something. I have a couple stories that I'm thinking about as you say that. We recently, it's probably been six months or so, hired a woman who was close to 60. She seemed really personable, great customer service. She kind of knew her brands. This this was at Rags and said she would just need to be updated on the computer software. I'm not sure she used the word software, but (laughs) on the computer for the job. Well, as it turned out, she knew nothing, no computer skills, zero. I think she had a Kindle at home and that was it. And that's more than I can do for someone. Right. I can't wait for you to learn everything about computing. Wow. So, so interesting. Wow. Where people have, I feel really fortunate that the jobs that I've created for myself forced me to stay as current as I can stay. Yeah, I, that's a you very... You too, I'm that, sure. Yeah. Uh, yes, and it's not as intuitive. I mean, for you, if you all look into RAG's consignment, everything is computerized. It's heavily systematic. Most consignment places, they look a step above kind of a Goodwill store. Not that I have nothing against Goodwill stores. Right. I shop there too <laughs> for environmental reasons. Everything's barcoded and you know exactly the length of time. And if you bring something to rags that is more than a year and a half old, they know it somehow by the codes that are on the tag. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's extremely efficient and tech dependent, which is really admirable. And I think that's why it's more profitable than other consignment stores. Right. Yeah. Okay. So Margaret, one question I love to ask is, it's my theory that there is one thing that we have received feedback on for our entire lives. Probably started around age two. You've gotten exactly the same piece of, we'll call it quote, negative feedback. And you've been working on it your whole life. And no matter what you do or how hard you work or how enlightened or how much meditation you do, you still get some form of this feedback. What is it for you? I would say 
<laughs> this is hard, isn't it, to be called out on this? <laughs> Since it's happened so much, say, it should get easier. <laughs> right. And I've experienced you, by the way. <laughs> um, my kids called me out on it initially, but I didn't feel like it was a big problem or that maybe they didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> They would say, Mom, you didn't tell us the first part of the story. You just started talking in the middle of it, uh. <laughs> assuming that we were with you all caught up as soon as you started talking. And what I see play out in my business life, and especially with employees, because they're not as direct as children, <laughs> my employees will look at me with a puzzled look and sort of tip their heads and try to say something nice about where did that come from? Or what were you thinking before you said that? Or what do you want me to do about that thing that you didn't really explain to me? Uh. <laughs> so I think it's just that my brain is busy. It's on to the next thing. And I don't stop to think, oh, they're not with me on this. I didn't say that out loud to this person. So, so are you adjusting? You try to adjust for it when you see the tipped I head? Do. Yeah. yeah. Great. I try. I don't think I do very good at it, but very good job. So if there's one thing that you still have left, and I know there's lots that you have left to learn, you're an enlightened person, but there's kind of one thing that you think is still, boy, if I could get this figured out, this edge, if I could really understand it better, my leadership, my success would take a huge leapfrog. What is that for you? Hmm. I'm trying to slow my idea train. <laughs> I feel like I've always got a couple too many things out there, which keeps me from turning my full attention back to the businesses that I have. But I'm not sure I'm willing to give that up. So huh. I don't know what the answer is. Huh. That's really interesting. Are you open to a thought I have? Yes. Great. We can decide <laughs> later whether we want to take this out. So I have a, I have a thesis that you actually have built repeatable models for a couple businesses that are extremely difficult for other people to figure out in any scalable fashion. And that you actually have a desire to see those businesses replicated. And that for some reason, you haven't been able to make that happen into other states. Like I think you have two franchisable businesses, for example. That is absolutely true. Yes, yeah. let's work together. <laughs> and yeah, well, I'm wondering it may these those two things may be correlated, like the idea train and your desire to keep, because I also want to honor like there's something that's taking right. your mind space that's because if right. you wanted that, you would obviously have it. Right. So there's something else you're getting. And it may just be the wild creativity that you get to experience having it the way you have it. Right. And a great example of that is opening a 6,000 square foot theoretical warehouse space and having the spacious brain to figure out that it could be something totally different, which is just awesome. Right. I admire that a ton. Thank you. Mm, thank you for being with us. Thanks for joining us, all of you out there. And thanks also to the amazing, I just, just natural entrepreneur. You don't meet those all the time. Margaret Miner, the founder and CEO of Rags Consignment and 1020. As always, Real Leaders Radio is brought to you by Mergelene, the accelerator and investment fund for startups with at least one female in leadership. We have an accelerator class kicking off in 2017. We have a few women's leadership camps that are teed up for next year as well. And this year, we're partnering with Avid for Adventure to launch our first ever leadership camp for high school girls. It's a summer camp from August 7th to 11th. Go to avid4.com to learn more. 
Real Leader is also is sponsored by Anton Collins Mitchell, a Colorado-based audit, tax, and general accounting firm. Find out how ACM can help you and your company with accounting needs at acmllp.com. Thanks for being with us this time, and we'll see you next time at Real Leaders.